You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Before we begin today's Blind Spot episode, I want to share another history podcast with you. If you haven't discovered it already, you have got to check out Corey Constable's podcast, Omitted. In it, Corey explores major events in history such as the sinking of the Titanic or the attack on Pearl Harbor as well as major issues such as historic American racism, culturally entrenched and systemic not only in the South, but elsewhere as well. But he does far more than just give you the broad strokes of a story. Rather, he picks out the individual strands of people's stories that, when woven together, create the tapestry of our history. Here's Corey Constable, host of Omitted. Hey, y'all. It's Corey here from a little podcast called Omitted. If you like this episode, then I'm sure you'll like what I'm putting together. I spend a season at a time highlighting the lesser-known stories from some of history's biggest events. Titanic, Pearl Harbor, the Civil Rights Movement. You've heard the stories, but have you heard all of them? I don't think you have. So after this episode is done... Do a search on your favorite podcatcher for Omitted. That's O-M-I-T-T-E-D. Hope to see you soon. On to the show. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Lloyd. And this is a Blind Spot episode, a companion piece to our recent series on mysterious foundlings, which comprises our two part study on Kaspar Hauser, as well as the interlude Blind Spot on Princess Karabu. In this episode, we'll look closely at another unfortunate woman who, like Princess Karabu, lived as a vagrant in England, and around whom, much like Kaspar Hauser, a narrative of royal lineage developed. Please enjoy, then, as a bookend to our last few episodes, this blind spot, the Lady of the Haystack. In a little village called Borton, outside Bristol, 
a beautiful but troubled woman appeared in 1776. By all accounts young, elegant, shapely, and graceful, she enchanted those whom she encountered, who worried for her on account of the destitute condition in which she appeared. Nevertheless, she never complained about her situation or begged for any charity beyond a drink of milk. Indeed, although everyone she encountered entreated her to come indoors and accept shelter in their homes, and especially the village women who warned her how unsafe it was for a woman alone to sleep out of doors, this unusual creature refused all their offers, choosing instead to slumber beneath the makeshift shelter of haystacks in the fields of Borton. For as she said, quote, trouble and misery dwelt in houses, and that there was no happiness but in liberty and fresh air, end quote. Never did she share her true name with the townsfolk who assumed from her bearing that she was of high birth. In the absence of a name, she was given one, Louisa. Throughout her time in Borton, many attempts were made to ascertain who Louisa was and whence she came. She spoke English, but with some peculiarities in pronunciation and sentence structure, such that most believed she was foreign-born. One gentleman spoke to her in a variety of European tongues, most of which appeared to make her uncomfortable. And when he spoke German, she turned away, overcome with emotion and sobbing. Walking to and fro, she showed kindness to children and accepted gifts of milk and tea and simple foods, but refused the extravagances of fine clothing and jewelry, which she discarded atop bushes as though they were things of little interest or beneath her. Thus she abided in Borton for four years, making her home among the haystacks the entire time, except for a short stay in St. Peter's Hospital in Bristol, where she was treated for insanity and promptly released. Age, illness, and exposure to the elements took a toll on her beauty, but nevertheless she remained an enchanting woman. Fond of her and concerned for her well-being, the people of Borton placed her under one Mr. Henderson's care in his private insane asylum in Gloucestershire. Although she had not wished to go, her health did appear to improve there. Her lucidity, however, appeared to wane, and she descended into some form of cognitive impairment, called in that era not derangement or dementia, but rather, quote-unquote, idiotism. While her wits deteriorated, those who cared for her refused to give up on finding where she had come from and perhaps reuniting her with family. Based on her reaction to spoken German, they believed her to be of German origin. Therefore, as she languished in Henderson's Gloucestershire madhouse, her friends composed a narrative relating all they knew about her appearance in England and her behavior there. And this they published in the newspapers of a variety of major German and French cities. To their disappointment, nothing came of the narrative's publication, at least not at first. Some years later, though, as Louisa, the lady of the haystack, continued to deteriorate in her room at the madhouse, a fantastic pamphlet purporting to reveal the secret of her origins was published anonymously in France. This mysterious pamphlet was titled, The Stranger, A True History, and it began with an introduction of sorts that gave the particulars of Louisa's previously published narrative before tantalizingly suggesting that this poor lady of the haystack might indeed be one and the same as the subject of the narrative it went on to share. 
The pamphlet began its story in 1768, when one Count Kobenzel, minister plenipotentiary of the Austrian Netherlands under Holy Roman Empress Maria Theresa, received a cryptic letter from a woman at Bordeaux calling herself Mademoiselle La Froline. In this letter, she said that she had written to him because of how universally respected he was. She was soliciting some undefined aid from him, and she assured him that when he knew who she was, he would likely be glad to have helped her. Kobenzel then received another letter, signed by a Count Weisendorf from Prague, suggesting that Kobenzel do all he can to help this La Frulen woman, and to advance her money if she desired it. For again, quote, When you shall know, sir, who this stranger is, you will be delighted to think you have served her, and grateful to those who have given you an opportunity of doing it." End quote. And then another similar letter from one Count Dietrichstein of Vienna arrived, entreating Kobenzel again to help this woman with a false name. Kobenzel replied to Lafrulin that he'd be happy to help her, but must be told her real name. Their correspondence continued, and as she prevaricated, Kobenzel was visited by a woman from Bordeaux who knew the mysterious letter writer, speaking very highly of her and sharing with Kobenzel that, due to her mysterious origins and the fact of her remarkable resemblance to the late Holy Roman Emperor Francis I, founder of the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty, many rumors had arisen about her extraction. Meanwhile, Lafrulin assured Kobenzel that she would tell him everything, but for the time being she sent him a portrait of herself, saying that it might give some hint as to what she would tell him. The subject of this portrait appeared to bear a remarkable resemblance to the late emperor, and this judgment was made by none other than the late emperor's own brother, Prince Charles of Lorraine, whom Count Kobenzel had shown the painting. As Kobenzel continued to exchange letters with this stranger, she sent him further portraits, this time of the Empress and the late Emperor, suggesting Kobenzel compare her portrait only to the latter. The implication was quite clear, and Kobenzel felt he had to tread rather carefully, yet he continued to receive letters from elsewhere commending him for helping this Mademoiselle Lafrolin and beseeching him to keep her secret. After about half a year of this, though, in the early months of 1769, he received letters of a different sort. These communications from Vienna indicated that the authorities were in the process of arresting this La Frolin in Bordeaux and shipping her to Brussels to be questioned by Count Kobenzel himself. For it appeared that the King of Spain had also received a letter about this woman in Bordeaux. This missive purporting to be from Emperor Joseph II himself, claiming the girl as his half-sister and the natural-born daughter of the late Francis I. But when the King of Spain contacted His Imperial Majesty about this letter, the Emperor denied writing it, informed his mother, the Empress, that a forger and impostor in Bordeaux was seeking to pass herself off as a Habsburg Lorraine, and forthwith dispatched legal authorities to apprehend her. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. 
Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Upon arriving at Brussels and being conducted to Count Cobenzel, the mysterious Mademoiselle Lafrelin charmed everyone with her beauty and bearing, and surprised some with her striking resemblance to the late emperor. She appeared to be under the impression that her arrest was due to debts she had incurred in Bordeaux, which had been her reason for writing to Cobenzel for aid in the first place. The tale this woman shared with Cobenzel and her other interrogators was a sad one indeed. She had no notion of her birthplace, but believed she had been raised in Bohemia, where she remembered a remote country house, two kind women who nurtured her, and a man of the cloth who occasionally visited to say mass and catechize her. The women took it upon themselves to teach her to read and write, but this priest, upon discovering the fact, forbade it. Thus she persisted, a chaste and pious youth, sequestered from all society, until a man she did not know came to visit her wearing a hunting suit put her on his knee, and remarked upon how grown she was. Lovingly, he encouraged her to behave well and obey her guardians, and he took his leave. He made a great impression on her, and when he returned more than a year later, dressed again as though out on a hunt, she committed his features to memory, such that she could and did describe him in detail to Count Cobenzel and her other interrogators. At the conclusion of the man's second visit, she wept, and he appeared moved, promising to visit again soon. However, he did not return for two years, explaining then that he had intended to visit sooner but had taken ill. During this third encounter, the youthful Mademoiselle Lafrelin expressed her familial love for the man, and he likewise expressed love for her, promising to see to all her needs and provide her an opulent life of wealth. He then gave her three portraits, one she recognized as being of himself, which he admitted, and one of a regal-looking woman. These, she claimed, 
were the portraits of the late Emperor Francis I and Empress Maria Theresa that she had sent to Count Kobenzl. The third portrait depicted a veiled woman, which the man claimed was her mother. Along with the portraits, he gave a gift of money and a promise to soon fulfill all her grandest wishes. But he also made her vow never to marry. The implications of the tale were clear. If the man had been the same as the subject of the portrait given to Kobenzl, that made him Emperor Francis. And some other particulars of the tale indicated that she was supposed to have been his daughter. For example, in explaining to her some article of his clothing as an officer's distinction, and then endeavoring to explain what an officer was, he indicated that they were honorable and gallant men whom she should love, being herself the daughter of an officer. And later, when asking her whether she would like to meet the Empress, he said, quote, You would love her much if you knew her, but that for her peace of mind you must never do. End quote implying some secret kept from the Empress. Thus the fact he always visited in hunting clothes, for what better excuse to make a visit to the countryside than a hunt? And Lafrulin's descriptions of his features, and in particular a distinguishing pale mark on one of his temples, seemed to fit the late Emperor Francis exactly. In fact, the detail that he had become ill during a specific period was corroborated by the late emperor's brother Charles, who recalled Francis becoming ill after returning from a hunting trip around that time. Eventually, the priest who taught her catechism informed her that the kind visitor she so loved had passed away and had left instructions that she be taken to a convent. So terrified was she of life in a convent that she fled from her chaperones during the journey, ending up sleeping in a barn. Thereafter, relying on the charity of those she encountered, she was able to find passage to Sweden on a carriage, but fell from the conveyance during the journey, suffering a grievous head wound and having to stay with a Dutch family at their inn until her recovery. Thereafter continuing to Stockholm, she encountered the first of a series of charitable noblemen who, on account of her resemblance to the late emperor and based on cryptic recommendations to offer her aid, took her in, provided her with gifts and loans, and generally saw to her every need and comfort. Everywhere she went in those years, from Stockholm to Hamburg to Bordeaux, she fell in with an aristocratic element who often received letters from afar entreating them to offer her succor and charity hinting at the tantalizing secret of her lineage. Such letters, of course, Count Kobenzl and his fellow interrogators were well familiar with, and they informed Mademoiselle Lafrolaine that she was not in custody because of the many debts she had accumulated in Bordeaux, but rather for the forging of letters and for fraudulently posing as the daughter of Emperor Francis. In great distress, she admitted to having forged the letter from Emperor Joseph II to the King of Spain, as well as some other letters, but she justified this based on the threats she had received from creditors, and refused to recant the story of her youth and its implications that she was a natural-born daughter of the Emperor. As for many of the other letters, some of which Count Kobenzl himself had received recommending him to offer her aid, she claimed absolute ignorance of them suggesting that her father must have instructed a great many people to see to her welfare and that they continued to do so from afar. 
Moreover, she indicated that she had no desire to continue seeking charity from others, but that she had no choice because of the vow she had made never to marry. Several advantageous proposals had been made to her in Bordeaux that would have seen her well taken care of, but she had refused them to keep her promise. Having received the details of this interrogation, the Empress was disposed to treat the prisoner as severely as possible. But before any action was taken against her, Count Kobenzel became very fatally ill. While on his deathbed, he received a mysterious letter that he afterward burned. Something in the content of the letter appears to have convinced him to treat Mademoiselle Lafrelin far more leniently than the Empress wished. And after Kobenzel's death, she was conducted to a small town and left there to her fate with a sum of 50 gold coins. Thus, the pamphlet ended in the year 1769, insinuating that somehow this poor woman, driven quite mad by her circumstances, found her way across the channel seven years later to England and Bristol to lead a sad but tranquil life among the haystacks of Borton. In support of this speculation is the report that, among the several languages other than English spoken to her, Louisa, the Lady of the Haystack, only appeared to respond in any way to French and German. She appears to have been illiterate, never looking in a book even when one was offered to her. Some reported finding a distinct scar on her head that seemed to corroborate the story of her fall from a carriage. As her faculties had drastically diminished, all questioning of her regarding the content of the pamphlet was largely fruitless. She babbled about her mama coming for her, mostly. But once, when it was suggested that they take her to Bohemia, she is said to have replied, quote, that is Papa's own country, end quote. After a long illness, she died in Mr. Henderson's madhouse in December of 1801. By all accounts, still a happy and mirthful woman, even if she had lost all of her wits. She seems to have reverted to a childlike nature during that final season of her life, and she left behind many questions to which we may never know the answers. Who was she? If she was Mademoiselle Lafrolin, then was she indeed the daughter of an emperor? Or was she merely a forger and a confidence woman? Just as Mademoiselle Lafrolin remains a question mark blemishing continental history, in all likelihood Louisa, the Lady of the Haystack, will ever remain a blind spot in British history. A mystery in her own time, as well as an enigma in posterity. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. Some music on this episode was provided by Creepy Pizza. Find this artist on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. If you enjoy this podcast, support it by telling people about the show, liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter, and giving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also support the program by purchasing my book, Manuscript Found, a historical novel about the dubious origins of Mormonism and a Masonic plot to silence a traitor. If you enjoyed this blind spot's tale of a mysterious figure suspected of playing a confidence game who may or may not have been the object of a conspiracy of silence regarding her birth, 
you'll find more stories of charlatans and imposters, swindlery and conspiracy in my novel. There's a link to the Amazon page on our website at historicalblindness.com books. And if you're feeling generous and want to contribute directly to the production of the show, you can donate at historicalblindness.com donate or on our Patreon page at patreon.com historicalblindness, where with monthly donations of as little as a dollar, you can unlock tiers of rewards, including such bonuses as a thank you on an episode, patron-exclusive communications and listener polls, teaser promos, early access to episodes, discounts on books and merch, and at higher levels, free copies of my books when they are released, as well as producer credits as a partner at the end of every episode. Go and check it out. I'll be working on further rewards as well as developing merchandise soon. I'd like to end this episode with another podcast recommendation. Listen to Murder Under the Midnight Sun, a true crime podcast that focuses on a beautiful and darkly dangerous land, Alaska, where sometimes the sun does not set and sometimes it fails to rise. Keep listening after the program for a special message from the host of Murder Under the Midnight Sun, Ariel Jane. That's it for this blind spot. These are getting longer and longer. Until next time, don't turn a blind eye to someone in need. You never know who they might be. Hi guys, this is Ariel, host of Murder Under the Midnight Sun, an Alaskan true crime podcast. I'm a lifelong Alaskan, and while the state is beautiful, it does have a dark side. So if you're interested in hearing about true crime stories you've never heard of before, and also learning a little about the 49th state, give me a listen. I'm on iTunes and Stitcher.